0: With you in person this is the next best thing uh, my advice to those who weren't feeling well if they had cold or flu symptoms they should stay home and uh, this past couple days i've had a little bit of a flu system and uh, flu in my system it's been very very mild and uh, manageable and actually right now i'm feeling completely normal uh, but i don't want to take the risk of being with you this sunday and so um, I, I had started a series on the seven churches of Asia and um, kind of got carried away last week on some things, and so I end up I didn't get it accomplished the way I'd hoped to, get it finished, get it wrapped up in two weeks. And so I'm left with one church, the church at Laodicea, and uh, I thought I'd share that with you here this morning. I also thought I'd be available to show some slides of... Um, couple trips that I made to Turkey where these seven churches are and uh, it won't work with this uh, with this system of being able to talk to you today and so I'll save that for another time I think what I'll do is I'll probably uh, turn it into a slideshow and put it on my YouTube channel and give you give everyone a link to that so you'll be able to go there and 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 see those slides it's uh, worthwhile to see and so I wish you could all go to Turkey uh, and see these seven churches. I think the big takeaway that uh, I had from those tours is that um, these seven churches, including Laodicea, must have repented because uh, we could see evidence at every site of a massive church. In, case of, in the case of uh, uh, Ephesus, there's several churches. It was the largest. It was the mother church of all the other ones. And um, there's several big uh, basilicas, the bones of these basilicas, arches and foundations and massive stones and pillars uh, that are strewn. This whole, earth, this whole area is earthquake prone. And uh, every one of these cities, including Colossae and Hierophilus, which is nearby, uh, Laodicea, uh, and they're mentioned also in the Book of Colossi. Uh, all of these churches were destroyed, and then um, because they had become more um, focused on, um, what should we say, uh, they became more um, legalistic, more uh, traditional, more Episcopal, more Catholic, um, focused on rituals, burning candles and incense and, and that kind of thing. They, they, they lost the power of the Holy Spirit. They uh, no longer had apostles and prophets leading the way, leading the churches. Uh, they became uh, bishop-driven and they, the Christianity was largely in their heads, it seemed like. very uh, Very important to have theological uh, debates and discussions and, and synods that would decide things and and so they lost the, the real keeping power uh, of the church in the sense that they were no longer vibrant, no longer alive. Uh, but maybe 200 years after these letters were written, uh, Islam began to sweep and moved in and the churches uh, were driven underground and you can go to places like Cappadocia. Uh, Peter wrote to the to the brother that Cappadocia and Cappadocia is an unusual mountain region and it's a soft um, I think some kind of volcanic ash and it's a it's a really unusual landscape. Uh, you can look it up yourself if you look up Cass- Cappadocia in Turkey. It's, it's, uh, it's very very interesting. It's like these big cones and people built houses out of them and, and underneath, underneath is a labyrinth of, of caves, of houses and churches and altars and places for baptisms. And so what, what happened when Islam came in, um, they were threatened and they moved everything, even some of their livestock, they moved them underground and it just never recovered. And then there's a time when there are no more Christians in Turkey and to this day, in modern day Turkey, very, very few Christians, and the ones that are there, our brethren who are there are persecuted uh, for their faith. They they largely live underground, not physically, but spiritually. And um, there is a church in Turkey. Of course, there's a church everywhere, but um, it's not the same. And so all these churches survived. The evidence of that, uh, or they all repented, the evidence of that is that they built massive basilicas so there's a time when, when Constantine, who is the emperor, claimed to have been converted, and he legalized Christianity and built the first church building. And so they moved from a, a house church style meeting into very large uh, basilicas. Basilicas look like a granary. You can see pictures of them if you look at look at uh, first century churches or. Uh, churches around the year 300, so it wouldn't be first century, but 300-350. In fact, you can see um, evidence of that style of church because that was there was only one style. They all built the same style church everywhere in that known part of the Roman world, and um, uh, all of them are the same. and And you can go to um, Spain. You can go to um, places in Rome and still see that style of church, the Basilica style of church. You can fit a lot of people in them and that's what they moved to. And so in each one of these places where the seven churches of Asia were, there were very large churches and I've roamed around them and and seen the arches and the foundation stones, the pillars, the columns uh, that really make make me realize that these were huge, huge buildings. and so Laodicea, good news about that is that they repented. Now, before we get into this letter, there's a way of teaching uh, the book of Revelation that's called uh, a, from a dispensationalist point of view. And that may not mean much to you, but it's uh, there are dispensations, there are periods, uh, stages of, of development and stages of history that they take all of these letters and uh, interpret the Book of Revelation through that mindset. And the Spirit Filled Life Bible that I have uh, in the footnotes will include the dispensationalist point of view and then uh, another alternative point of view. And the dispensationalist um, really got popular, that form of teaching really was popular around 1900. And there's a guy named C.I. Schofield who uh, wrote a, a version of the Bible with well, the Bible was the same, but put his notes, it was anon- anonoted, uh, footnotes where he put in his dispensationalist point of view. And there's other Bibles that have done the same kind of thing, but they became super popular. So for the Mennonites and Amish uh, people in, that we've known, say our fathers and grandfathers, they were exposed to that influence. They were exposed to Dispensationalist preaching, and and a lot of people were it became super popular because it was novel. It was different. It was a whole new way of reading the Bible, and and, and uh, people were longing for that kind of thing. Um, the dispensationalist point of view would say that these seven churches, though they're real at the time, they represent whole segments or stages of history. So the the first letter in in uh, uh, chapter 2 that was written to the Ephesians was the earliest form of of the church. And then each uh, church thereafter represents a different period. And they had the period, you know, leading up to Martin Luther, then the Reformation. And um, uh, they had uh, a period that was very good when it came to the Philadelphia story that's written in the, one of the letters to the Church of Philadelphia. <coughs> well, the Laodicea... Uh, church was the worst. I mean just it's uh, it's a real amazing letter uh, uh, very little commendation and quite a bit of uh, conviction that Jesus writing and telling them what had to go what had to change and they said that that stage of church history was this stage, this period starting about 1900, 1906 uh, that we are the Laodicean age. And um, Watchman Nee, he was a super popular writer and um, he wrote, that was his slant on it as well, he wrote the Dispensationalist point of view or echoed the popular teaching that Schofield had developed. (coughs) So uh, what we are in their minds is we are uh, constantly, the uh, under condemnation as the Laodicean age. So it's very. Um, it would preach. It would say, "We need to repent. We're the worst stage." And uh, but there is no way to get out of it. And so once you're cast into that Laodicean period, well, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. Every time you wake up, it's Groundhog Day again. It's it's you're cast. You're stuck in that age. And it was a way of trying to move people, prod them to change, prod them to repent. Uh, but it's a, it was a very negative form of, of, of uh, condemnation, really, that was constantly being put, put condemnation on us to try to get the churches to, to repent, to get out of this uh, Laodicean age, except there was no way out because Uh, we were always in the Laodicean age and that's how they interpret it. Uh, You can tell by the sound of my voice, you can tell by my attitude as I'm teaching this that I don't believe that. Uh, I don't feel that's a proper way to understand these churches. There's plenty enough conviction in in these letters that we don't need to resort to condemnation. Condemnation gives you a sense that you've done something wrong and you're kind of stuck with it. You can't really ever really do anything about it. You're kind of stuck. And um, you have to get over this wall, but there's no boost to help you over the wall. And uh, a lot of people use condemnation to, to keep their people in line or to motivate their people to get them in line. And so it became very popular among uh, conservative uh, groups, all kinds of conservative groups, Baptists, Anabaptists, uh, and so they used it. They they went with C.I. Co- Sof- Schofield, who was a Baptist, and so. Um, Uh, I don't believe that that's the way to interpret these letters. I think they were just actual churches that Jesus revealed. He took the lid off of what was going on in those churches because he sees and he hears and he knows. He stands in our midst and he knows knows Wellspring. He knows our church. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses, our attitudes. He knows our hearts Sunday by Sunday. Uh, That's a very powerful thing. That will produce change that'll produce growth and we want that um, and so uh, I thought I'd share that just before we go into this last reading of this last church and see what Jesus has to say to the, the seven churches so here's what he wrote to the church at Laodicea In the angel of the church of Laodicea write these things says the Amen the faithful and true witness, and that means martyr. Jesus was the the first martyr, the ultimate martyr, martyr with a capital W. The beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were uh, cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What an amazing thing to say. Uh, This is lovely Jesus. This is Jesus who loves us, loves us completely. And yet he's saying something here that gives you an indication that we're not home free. Uh, He could actually reject us. Uh, That goes against a lot of teaching, even popular teaching today. A lot of extreme grace teaching that says that you can do what you like, you can live what you like. Uh, live the way you like, and there's really no consequences for it. That's not what Jesus was teaching here. It's funny when you're thirsty for something, uh, we prefer a hot drink or a cold drink. Very rarely, if ever, are you really satisfied? Do you long for something that's lukewarm? It just doesn't it just doesn't do it. And Jesus is saying that to this church that that to me, um, your life, your spiritual life, your spiritual life as a church is not satisfying to me. It doesn't mean I want you to be cold spiritually. So I want you to be refreshing. Uh, I, it's not that I, I only want you to be hot. I want you to be either hot or cold, but um, this whole middle lukewarmness. And it's funny, if you ask Christians, are you hot? Or are you cold? And they think of cold spiritually as spiritually dead. Uh, They'll say, no, I'm not either of those. Very few people will say they're spiritually hot. So that automatically puts them in the middle, which is lukewarm. And then you hit them over the head with, I I will spew you out of my mouth. And again, it's just condemnation. But it's just the way we are, that we prefer something hot. We prefer something cold. And they were neither. And so they were distasteful. Uh, To Jesus, that—that's something to really be thinking about. I mean, Jesus loves us unconditionally, but He prefers. He has preferences. He there's things that He gravitates to. Uh, He wants us either be hot or cold. He wants us to be satisfying to Himself. He says to them, "Because you say so." He was listening. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. Do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, really rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. They saw themselves one way. You know, most, most of us start off uh, with nothing. And under the blessing of God and living a disciplined life and choosing, choosing other than the way of the world, uh, we all prosper in this church like you and I. Uh, you and I have prospered. And the, the struggle that we had in the beginning is not our concern today. And they actually concluded, I, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I've become wealthy. And, and there's a risk with that. It's a, it's a funny thing that um, it's probably harder to have things and to have means and wealth. So you don't even have to pray as to whether or not you buy something. You don't have to labor and pray prayer whether to spend money. You can just afford to choose. You can choose on your own. And I've met people who've become wealthy and they stop praying. Uh, they don't really have to. They're not, and they don't have the pressure, the strain of, of need driving them into the arms of Jesus. And so it puts them at risk. Um, wellspringers, let me speak to you for a minute. Never mind the Laodiceans. All of us are prospering. All of us have more than we had in the beginning. Our church is prosperous. And in the beginning, we struggled. We had to pray. We had to pray over, you know, for a long time. I I didn't draw a salary. Uh, I had a a small um, housing allowance for which we were very grateful because we had nothing. Uh, We had very few people. We didn't own our own building. Now we own buildings. And so we've prospered. The risk. The risk is can we be prosperous? Can we have this and not not conclude in ourselves that, that we don't need we don't need him. We can just buy, we can just choose, we can opt in or out, and it's a it's a risk. And it's not how you started the Christian walk, how it's how you finish the Christian walk. That's that's what really counts. And so this church started well and prospered. And it says, we, we became wealthy and we have need of nothing. But their perspective was off. Spiritually speaking, Jesus said, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor. There was another church who concluded that they were poor and Jesus said, no, no, no. from my perspective, you're rich, you're really rich, you're rich in faith, you're rich spiritually. Um, the, there's a risk for us as, as people at Wellspring. There's a risk for us with the risk of prosperity. He says, I counsel you to buy buy from me gold refined in faith, uh, refined in the fire. Uh, that I believe he's talking about faith. And anything that reduces your need for faith, we have to treat it like an enemy. It puts us at risk. And um, faith is is the commerce of heaven. Faith is what makes heaven, uh, it's the greatest thing in heaven. It shows how wealthy you are, how much glory, how much grace, how much truth, uh, how much of a witness you really are. All those things are are the things that determine how wealthy you are in heaven. It's not silver and gold. You've heard it said before. It's always worth uh, repeating, you know, that even the streets are paved with gold. Uh, The things that we long for here are as nothing in heaven. But the thing that really people will see, people will see what you really look like, how much faith you really develop. He said, I counsel you, my advice to you, even at this late stage, is to find a place where you live by faith, Uh, faith which is gold refined in fire, and that you may be clothed the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. It's possible, I suppose, that once our bodies fall to the ground and we stand in the spirit realm, uh, we can see that how naked people really are. They don't shine with glory. They're not clothed in white. And it becomes obvious obvious to everybody the level of their spirituality, the quality of their spiritual development. People will see it. We can hide it here. We can hide how much faith we have, how much glory we have, uh, what we're clothed with, our intimacy levels with Jesus. All of those things can be hidden here or faked here, but they can't be faked when you die, when you go in the spirit realm, what you really are, how pure you are, how holy you are, how much glory you have, how much truth you have, how much faith you have, all of that, is evident for everyone to see. You can't hide. You can't fake it. It'll be evident. He says, And anoint your eyes with an eye salve. And you know the story people have taught that they produced eye salve ointment at Laodicea. Um, I can't teach it that way because um, uh, even though there may be some uh, historical evidence to that effect. its it, We don't have that in the Bible, so uh, it's hard to prove. But he says this. He wants you to see differently. He wants you to have an experience with the eyes of your heart. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. and He said, I'm praying for your spiritual eyes. We should take some time today, each of us, and pray for the eyes of our heart. Lord, let me see. Let me see me. Let me see my true condition. Let me see what I need to do. Let me see accurately. Lord, I, I I'm asking that you anoint my eyes, my the eyes of my heart with a salve. Let me see the way you see. I don't want to I don't want to fake it. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be misled by my own view of myself. That is what Jesus is saying, whether or not they made eye salve or not. Pray for yourself, pray for your family. God, help me to see, help me to see the, what you see and use revelation, take the lid off of my life, expose it, use circumstances, use trials. This COVID period that we've been in is a real trial. It's a, it's a revelation of, it helps us to see. Uh, We shouldn't hate it. We shouldn't despise it. We should embrace it and say, Lord, use anything that will help me see myself more accurately. And he goes on to verse 19. It says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus does love them. He does love them. He's head over heels in love with the Church of Laodicea. He loves them so much that he's willing to discipline them. He loves them so much he's willing to spank them. He loves them so much that he's willing to chasten them. This thing about, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Um, Rebuke is oral correction and sometimes it's enough. Uh, you'll know among with your own children that just saying to them something that causes them enough pain that they change their attitude or change their behavior, that a rebuke is necessary sometimes to get them to change because it, it hurts. The, rea- the truth hurts. The reality hurts. And if they don't listen to the rebuke, you go to the next level of inflicting pain, which is physical and chastening. And so... Uh, in my relationship with the Lord all these years, any time that he's wanted to get after something in my life, he starts by speaking to me. He warns me. He tells me what's wrong. He, I don't have to guess. Uh, he's very ex- explicit. He's, he, he's convicting. Conviction is a very clear sense of what, what you've done that's wrong. And he's been that way with me often rebuking me, and, and that's the first stage. Uh, moms and dads, we want you to be disciplinarians of your children. They have a fallen nature that needs correction, and they, it needs somebody to, to curb its, its passions and its, its uh, uh, ability to take over our lives and dominate our lives of our kids. And so the way to stop that flesh, nature, that fallen nature from dominating the, their little lives is you start with rebuke, which is oral correction. And then if they don't heed that, they don't listen to that, you go to physical correction, which is chasing or getting out, getting out uh, uh, the rod and disciplining them. To, to inflict pain on our children without warning them, without telling them in advance, if you do this, this will be the consequence." That's, that's wrong. That's the wrong way to discipline. It's the wrong way to punish. Just a, uh, I hear parents who, who lash out in their own flesh, their own frustration, and they swat the kid in the mouth or across the side of the head. Or, um, there's no forewarning. There's, there's, no, um, uh, there's no rebuke telling them what they did wrong and what they need to do to change. They just lash out at them. That's wrong. That's, that's the wrong way. That's the stuff that ends up in the newspaper that gives chasing a bad name, makes it so that you, you know legally won't be able to chase your children anymore because we automatically go to pain, physical corporal punishment, rather than rebuke. When Jesus wants to get through to me, he speaks to me. That's part of our relationship. Is there par- prospect of physical pain or something that really hurts, uh, yeah, there really is. And he's warning them of that. He said, I love you. I love you so much. I love you, and I will not leave you the way you are. I will speak to you. I will, I will discipline you, and I'll chasten you. And, and um, he's warning them of that reality. Grace teaching, and there's, I'm a grace guy, and I teach grace. But there's a grace teaching that eliminates this that makes everything cushy and easy and comfortable and, and only, only positive that, that Jesus loves us so much that he's only affirming. And um, you will not grow healthy, strong Christians with that. We need the probability, the possibility, uh, the consequence of punishment to keep us living a, a straight and narrow life. It, it is a biblical reality. It's his relationship to the church. It's his relationship to me. And I I know it's his relationship to our church at Wellspring. Then he says this, Be zealous therefore and repent. That's the whole goal. Uh, Get on fire. Come on, shake this off. Get at it. Get back and and repent. Uh, But this is what I was just alluding to a minute ago. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. What a tremendous promise. What, a, what an amazing promise. And uh, this church has lost its intimacy. Uh, they've lost fellowship with Jesus, which is Everything. And they no longer are meeting with him and dining with him. He's no longer feeding them. They're no longer feeding him, providing what he needs. He longs for us to feed him as well. It's mutual. It's food that satisfies both parties. It's a real meal. And, and as you know, you've heard me say it before, this verse is often lifted out of context and put on evangelistic tracks and I could see where it would work that way. You know, I invite Jesus into your heart to come and sit down in your heart. But it was really written to a church saying that I, I long for koinonia. I long for fellowship between us to be restored. In the Middle East today and in this period, one of the most intimates, intimates, uh, intimate things that we could do with someone is have a meal with them. Uh, they're so big on that. It, it's it's a, an amazing thing to experience Middle Eastern hospitality. And uh, Jesus is very Middle Eastern, and he's saying, I'm longing to come in and have food. I'm not going to kick the door down. I'm not going to barge in. I need you to open the door. I'll knock. I need you to open the door. I need you to respond to an invitation to intimacy. Almost every morning, I, I just could almost say every morning, but... But almost every morning, uh, Jesus knocks at the door of my heart. He indicates that he wants time with me. And I have the option of of responding or sleeping in. But when I have this early morning desire come and hit me, or, or before I go to bed at night, it'll often hit. And sometimes during the day, I just have this desire to read my Bible and, and curl up with him and, and talk with him and be with him. It comes in the form of a... A desire. I believe that's His knock, that He's knocking. If I respond to that, He always feeds me. I always have some kind of mini-revelation that, that does something for me and, and uh, comes from our relationship. He's offering that as an incentive to repent. Be zealous and repent, for I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. What are you hungry for? These people were not satisfied in their Christian life or in their regular life, all their wealth did not satisfy, because they're missing fellowship, intimacy with Jesus. He goes on to promise them, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father his throne. What a picture. What a picture that when when Jesus ascended and he entered into heaven and he he came into this throne room where there's a sea of glass, there is Father God and he invites them to come and sit down with him and they talk face to face. And this is a, a tremendous thing that Jesus experienced. He knows the wonder of it. He knows how awesome it is. And he lays it out to the Laodiceans as a promise if they'll repent. We'll sit face to face. We'll be together. There's nothing more intimate than this. He says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Wellspring, we started well. It's been a race. It's been a wonderful race. It's been short. But to go another 10 years, uh, to go any longer, any any length of time, it puts us at risk of trading off with busyness, trading off with our our prosperity, trading off with our busy, uh, productive lives and and lose out on intimacy with Jesus, which is everything. And that's got to be our goal. So these are the seven letters to the seven churches. I hope it was challenging, enjoyable, insightful. Uh, I know for years I would just read these three chapters and the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. A lot of it in the middle really didn't, I didn't relate to it, didn't really speak to me. I didn't quite understand it. I'm not sure I fully understand it even yet. But I love these first three chapters. I love, I love the conviction that they contain. I love the blessing that they contain. And the last three chapters, of course, let me pray for you. Father, I pray for us as a people. I pray for myself included as the pastor. I, I pray that, Lord, that we'd finish well. We'd finish with intimacy. We'd go from intimacy to intimacy, glory to glory, faith to faith. God, take us. Take us deepest, deeper. Take us further. Don't let us get caught up in some dull little eddy of materialism and prosperity where we don't need you. God, help us, I pray. Help us to recover. Help us to be zealous. Help us to repent. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you, dear ones.